you turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as we continue our study through the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is majorly shifting gears here and getting into a, a totally new subject after we've spent some time on the gifts and on chapter 13 and the love chapter, and then how worship should be conducted in uh, chapter 14, and now we're into chapter 15 dealing with our resurrection. Um, so we're going to spend a little time here just on the first 11 verses. Starting in verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you of, as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I'm the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believe. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and we just thank you, Lord, that you are a good, good father who has great concern, Lord, for his children. And we thank you for that, Lord. I don't know what we would do without you. Thank you for the hope that you give us. Thank you for the expectation you put in our hearts. Thank you for being our Abba Father. And so, Father, as we uh, sit here and study your word, Lord, uh, help us to drink deeply of its truth uh, through the power of your spirit. And please continue to teach us what it means to live in ways that bring you honor and glory. And so, Father, we thank you for that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here we are, and we're changing uh, gears a little bit. And we're going to get into the resurrection, um, which we'll get into more fully, obviously, next week. But um, this is a very specific doctrine, and it's called the resurrection. And in fact, this is, in chapter 15, is the most extensive treatment in all of Scripture about what it means to be resurrected. Um, and so what I want to do is give a little background concerning what was going on in the minds of the believers back then. Um, that we think of chapter 15, and it teaches two things of great importance. It teaches about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it talks about our resurrection. And each and every one of us at some point are going to be resurrected. Um, in the rapture, when, when the Lord comes back before that great tribulation starts, those who are awake, well, those who are in the grave will be resurrected first, and then those of us who are still alive will also be called up into the clouds 
to be with him, and then we'll go up into heaven. And so isn't that going to be a trip? <laughs> Instantaneously we are changed. And so this is something that Paul wants us to understand um, about the resurrection. There were some misconceptions back then concerning that, and that's why he wrote this chapter uh, dealing with the resurrection. But where he starts out is he starts out with the gospel because that's really the foundation of why we're going to be resurrected. Um, and so back then there was a mix of belief concerning the resurrection. Uh, and so Paul wanted to straighten out their theology. If you were a Jew back then and you, you got saved, became a Messianic Jew like we call them today, they would often bring some of their religious ideas into salvation. And the Sadducees back, there, back then did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so there were some who had been saved out of that mindset. But what they would do is they'd come into the church and they'd really question whether or not that was valid to them because of their background. The Gentiles, on the other hand, feared death. And they believed in the immortality of the soul but felt that the body was of no use. Uh, so they wanted to get rid of the body and its decay and embrace the spirit. And so they didn't want anything to do with the body. Just let, let's just get rid of it. Like a lot of us don't want to have anything to do with our bodies today. And so they didn't believe in a resurrection either. Or, and there was a lot of misconception going on back then. And so they would bring common beliefs into the church concerning heaven and what that meant. And even today we have common beliefs where, you know, everyone goes to heaven. You talk to somebody that doesn't know Christ, oh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to go to heaven. Some believe that you're annihilated. And when you draw your last breath, that's it, like a bug, you know, or a spider or something like that. You know, they believe you're annihilated. Others believe in all kinds of different beliefs. How about reincarnation, you know? And I, I'm amazed at the amount of people believe in reincarnation. So if you don't live a good life now, you're going to be able to be reincarnated to live a better life down the road. And it's that constant quest. Either that or if you're really bad, you'll come back like an opossum or something like that, you know? You ever see opossums? They're, they're really ugly. <laughs> i never seen an uglier looking... They're just ugly. No wonder people run them over on the road. And I have never done that. <laughs> you can strike that one from the record, too. All right. <laughs> so, I mean, there's not a lot of hope in annihilationism, not a lot of hope in, to me, not a lot of hope in reincarnation, and even a lot of hope in, uh, in, in, oh, yeah, we all go to heaven kind of thing. And so what Paul wanted to do is he wanted to get them straightened out concerning the resurrection. And even today, there's questions among believers. Like, what if one meets a violent death and is kind of dismembered or scattered about because of an explosion or something like that? Um, how can their body come back together to be resurrected to a spiritual body? Or what if you're cremated? Does that eliminate any possibility of being resurrected, especially if you're cremated and then all your ashes are thrown out over somewhere from a helicopter or whatever, you know. Um, so what about that? And some people question that. Um, how about do we actually get a resurrected body that's like our own here? I mean, are we going to be recognizable? There's valid questions. Will we look similar? Uh, how old will we be? Uh, will we recognize one another? Will our personalities remain somewhat the same, you know? There's interesting questions to ask. 
as we look at one another and see one another and, and wonder what it's going to be like for us. And all I can say is it's going to be an adventure. And I, I mean, and I get so excited when I think about this uh, that, and see, this is what it means to have a good father, right? That he would actually grant us a new body, a resurrected body. And I love that he goes into detail about what that's going to be like for us. I mean, we, you know, God is a giver. He never stops giving to his children because he loves his children very much. And maybe we get a glimpse of that when you see with this. We have so many new fathers here in the room, you know, or just even recently, and, and, and even mothers, and you just see the embrace uh, of the child, the love that's there, the eyes that gleam and sparkle when they see their child, you know, this gift from God. Uh, there's nothing like it. it. There just isn't. And we think about the Father and his love for us, and what he wants to do is bless us and continue to bless us. And he understands the difficulty of living this life. He knows that. He understands what we struggle with and what we go through. But his love never wanes for us. Never. It is always there. And I believe that's why we get into this section now. I and mean, when you look at all how, what Paul addresses all along, now what the Lord wants to do is encourage us with an understanding of what we have to look forward to just so that we understand that what we experience here is temporary at best. So I think another question, too, that we'll get into, do unbelievers get a resurrected body to uh, dwell for eternity in hell? I think that's another question that I want to address as we get into this in the next couple of weeks. But what Paul wanted to do here as we move along and giving us insight into what it means to have the hope of a resurrection is give us an understanding of the basis of that. And that's why he gets into the gospel. So we're going to spend some time in the gospel this morning. Uh, for all of us who know our Lord, uh, it's good to be reminded. And that's what he says here. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel. So let's look at it because we need to be reminded of the gospel it's something that we need to understand so that we know what we have based our faith on. And so what he's doing is he's taking them as he continues to educate them in what it means to be a child of God. And he says, now I want, you to I want to remind you of why you proclaim Christ as your Lord and Savior. I'm going to remind you of the gospel and how precious it is. And so we're going to look at the gospel this morning concerning those things. I just... Though there are lengthy kind of, you know, sentences or paragraphs, we're just going to read point one, that the foundation of the resurrection of our physical bodies at the rapture, which will take place when Jesus returns, is what? Belief in the gospel. Evidence of the gospel having taken root in the heart of a believer is seen by what? A changed life. A changed life, that is, a life that obeys Christ's commands, comes from a firm conviction of the seriousness of conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so really what Paul is going to talk about here is that if there's evidence at all that we've come to believe in the gospel, the evidence is a changed life. And all of us can do a test, obviously a test to that, a changed life. And I praise God for that because I continually need to experience this changed life 
as the Lord continues to conform me into the likeness of his son. And so a couple questions. If I were to ask you to simply state what the gospel is, could you do it? What's the gospel? If somebody were to come up to you and ask you, what's this gospel thing that I hear talked about occasionally, could you do it? It's running through your mind. That's, that's a valid question, isn't it? Obviously. Uh, could you clearly state what it is you have chosen to put your faith in? And I think that's a challenging question. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 gives us one of the clearest definitions in the scriptures of what the gospel is. And it, it's important to think about this. Do you have a clear understanding of the gospel? And if not, then on what have you based your faith? That's right. And if I were to ask you what gospel was based on, could you answer that question? And these are questions that we should ask ourselves. And what's the gospel? And if you're struggling with answering these basic questions, then it's important to gain a, gain a clear understanding of this matter. And so Paul's whole argument is based on evidence, and the first being the evidence of a changed life. Very important. And so we're going to spend some time on that. Read once again. It says, now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. And I like that because basically when we came to know Christ as our Lord and Savior, we took a stand on something, right? We took a stand because we basically moved our feet off of the foundation of the philosophy of the world and we put our feet on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says it's something that we take our stand on. And, it isn't, and, he's in, in, and so basically he's talking to them because of how they were messing up when it comes to a church. And he's saying the evidence of the gospel is what you've taken your stand on. What have you taken your stand on? And that's another question to ask ourselves. Uh, what is the evidence? What's your conviction? Uh, and to take a stand means that we firmly hold on to a belief, and it's evidenced once again by a changed life. By a changed life. I'm changed, you're changed, at least you should be, right? And so the, the Corinthian believers came out of a spiritual blindness and the deadness of Judaism and, and paganism, and we come out of the deadness of paganism in this world. We came out of the philosophy. That's just like Chris asked for prayer. It's a good thing we need one another because the world is becoming increasingly confusing to live in. And we understand that. And a lot of us can stick our heads, heads in the sand. And I mean, I don't watch the news anymore because I want to stay in a good mood. And I want to watch my mouth. but it's getting out of control. And so what's going on? And this is why we need to ask ourselves, am I solidly standing on the foundation of Jesus Christ? Because if I'm not, then how am I going to survive this? Is it murder increasing? Is fathers taking the lives of their children? Mothers taking the lives of their children? You've got all kinds of craziness going on. You have mass shootings. And I'm not just getting negative. This is the reality of where we are. It's different than when I was a child. It's different. I mean, the 60s were crazy, and that's when I grew up. They were crazy. I mean, they were, 
you know, assassinations and all kinds of different things. There was a revolution going on, all kinds of different things. It was a wild time to grow up, but now it's even becoming much more. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, my life changed? And am I taking a stand on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And we need to ask ourselves these questions. Because if our lives are not stabilized by him, then how in the world are we going to remain stable as these things start to increase? As we see this world becoming increasingly more and more wicked. And so the matter is, do we take a stand? The gospel of Jesus Christ is evidenced in our lives by conviction, he says, toward the word of God. I preach to you which I received on which you have taken your stand. And so it's that what we take a stand on. That's why we come together here at Calvary Chapel, because we are word-based, we'll continue to be word-based, we'll not deviate from being word-based, and we will be very honest about what the scriptures say concerning the truth of God's word. And that's why you're here, and that's why we need the truth of God's word in order to take a stand. And he says this in verse 2, by this gospel you are saved. Well, what's the salvation aspect of it? What are we saved from? You know, that's the question. Do you know the gospel? Well, yeah, the gospel means that I'm saved. Well, that's good, but what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be? What are we saved from? Obviously, from ourselves and from sin and those different things. But if we're saved, what does that really mean for us then as we live our lives? Because I know as a man, I stand and I can stand in a room full of people that I don't know and I stand as a saved man, changed because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a result then, how has it changed me? How do I conduct myself in this world? And it says here, this gospel, you're saved, you're holy firm. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. And so really what he talks about now, and this is what I want to talk about a little bit, is about a, a, a non-saving faith and what that means. Because I'll just read it again. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. And so this is the question we come down to now when we talk about standing on the foundation of Christ, standing firmly in dealing with that. Is it something that we hold firmly to? Or do we believe in vain? And that's another question. It's an interesting question when we see the things that are going on, even in the lives of believers, professing believers. And so we're going to look at this a little bit. Let's just turn over here and point two. And it says this, belief in the gospel does not necessarily mean that it's from the heart. If the truth of the gospel is not something that someone is willing to take a stand on or if it's something that is held onto very loosely through immorality, idol worship, and loving the world, then that person's profession of faith shows no evidence of having come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you agree with that? Yeah. And so now Paul questions, if you're holding firmly, why are you holding firmly? Is this something that you've taken a stand on? And let's look at this a little bit because... There are those who run about thinking that they're saved and they're not. And we need to look at this. Holding firmly is evidence of salvation. And not to do so or the lack of conviction or even desire toward the things of Jesus Christ may call into question 
the person's salvation. It may, and I'll qualify that. It's not an indication of a loss of salvation. That's ultimately between that person and the Lord. But maybe they believed in vain. Maybe it's something that never took root in the heart. And the, and the question is, is there evidence of a changed life? And that's what the Lord looks for. Listen, you come to the Lord, and you come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and you're indwelt by Christ himself. There is going to be a changed life. Because we're indwelt by the power of God himself. It means that there will be a changed life. And we understand the process of sanctification. It takes time. For some, a lot quicker than others. But yet, there will be a changed life. And the question is, in asking these things, is my life changed? And so ultimately, like I said, it's between the Lord. One man put it this way, and we'll get into it. It is only by God's power that we are saved and only by his power that we are kept saved. Our salvation is kept by Christ holding us fast, not primarily by our holding him fast. Our holding unto him is evidenced that he is holding on to us. And it says, for which Christ Jesus has taken a hold of me, and I'll read those scriptures a little later. And so we think about that. I tell you, for the thing for me is that if he hadn't held on to me in my salvation through the conviction of the Spirit, through the power of the Word, through people coming alongside and mentoring me, through, through my church family, through my brothers and sisters in Christ, if he hadn't brought me and ushered me into a whole new existence, I could have easily let go of him. But praise God, he brought my father, brought me into what I needed as his child in order to remain true to him. I know we have our ups and downs, and we have our sin struggles, and we have our regrets. But yet he lovingly comes along and he convicts and leads us through repentance and renewal and gives us what we don't deserve. And it's all based on the gospel, and that's what Paul's trying to get across to them. Don't you understand all of these things are yours, but have you really taken a stand and are you holding firmly to what you believed in? And it's a serious matter. Our Lord repeatedly spoke of false believers who had useless, non-believing faith. Now, one who professes in Christ but rejects lordship, lives apart from holiness, proves that his or her salvation was never real. And so here's another question we ask ourselves, if we're in here because it's obviously it's a serious matter. Is there lordship in my life? Is it something that I think of? Lordship. And oftentimes people have held very loosely onto what they professed as Christ as their Lord and Savior because Christ never really took a hold of them. He doesn't hold fast to the word, or she doesn't, because his faith is in vain. It was never real. It was never a real faith. And I'm not saying everyone here isn't there. I believe we have come to know Christ. I know everyone here. But this is the thing that we need to ask. And, you know, and, by, and maybe by God's grace, as this goes out on the Internet, maybe somebody will listen and start to question, because of how they're living, whether or not they've taken a hold firmly, whether or not they're standing on the foundation of Christ. See, this is, 
as we think about where we are in life today, and we think about what is being thrown at us in ways that are hard to understand, Satan's whole goal is to shake you off of the foundation of Jesus Christ. And he'll do it in different ways. It's interesting. I spoke to Joe's group on, and I've done this a couple times. It's a men's group that gets together on a Monday night. Man, those guys are on fire for the Lord. It's fun to go there, and it's fun to talk with them. And you know why that whole group meets? I'll tell you why it meets, and I'm just going to be honest about it. It meets because of sexual compromise. And they've come to understand that through pornography or adultery or whatever else it might be. And they've come to a conviction that God has called them to live a life that represents the gospel well. And so you go and you talk to these men, and they'll freely talk about those things, but I can't go testimony after testimony after testimony saying, if it wasn't for these guys, where would I be? If it wasn't for the Lord Jesus Christ convicting me and bringing me to where I needed to fall on my face before him, where would I be? And we think about this. You know, God is very serious toward whether or not you're standing firmly on his foundation. And we need to think about that. What is the gospel and do I fully understand it? Is it something that I have taken a stand on? Is it dear to me? In Romans 10, you know, if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and do what? Believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. We'll be saved. And it's interesting when the Lord Jesus, when he was talking about the fact that there are those who profess him, profess faith, but really don't know him because their lives are not changed. And that's why somebody tells me something, that's great. Tell me, oh, I can't believe your biblical knowledge. That's great. Then I look and I see that their lives are a train wreck. Or I see that they allow this into their life. Or I see that they're living with somebody. And that's a hot button with me. I mean, I can just go right down on through the list. Or they're caught up in these different things that the world is offering. Or they're still getting high. Or they're doing this or they're doing that. And I'm going, what's going on here? You know, the Lord repeatedly spoke of false Christians who had uh, useless, non-saving. How about the parable of the sower? Just going down, it's listed there. The scriptures are there. You can learn the parable of the sower that the Lord talked about in Matthew 13, where the Lord comes over, or in the seed is, is planted in the heart of an individual whose seed fell on the path, and the Satan comes along and snatches it out. You know, generally, he doesn't want anything to do with the second category. It bothers me because it falls among rocky soil, and, they, and it takes root that it's very shallow and as soon as the things that will come along they just basically and they have a head knowledge but it never took root in the hearts and then the other two seeds I believe speak of believers one getting caught up in the cares of the world and they don't bear fruit and then the fourth bearing fruit but he speaks about the parable of the sower in Matthew 13 how about tares among the wheat the tares being weeds often that look like wheat and are not in Matthew 13 or he spoke of the many kinds of fish that are caught in a net with the bad among the good. Once again, Matthew 13, 47 to 50. He spoke of houses without foundations. He warned of gates and paths that seem right but lead to destruction in Matthew 7. Don't you see where the Lord has really put a lot of emphasis on it? He says, there are those uh, who call me Lord, Lord, but I never knew you. 
And really, that's what Paul says. I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. And I'm going to just say this much. If your life has not changed, you have believed in vain. If your life does not show evidence of what you've professed, evidence of what you claim to know, and understand, once again, sanctification, but the Lord changes us from the second we come to know him until the day we are called up into the heavens in a glorified body. And what God expects from us is change. But it's change that's good. It's change that blesses not only the Lord, but blesses us and it blesses others. And if your life isn't changing, you're still doing the things that you did before you got saved then I'll just say bluntly that you believed in vain. If your life hasn't changed morally, if your life hasn't changed in how you treat people, if your life hasn't changed in your approach to life, to business, to your interactions with different individuals, if your life isn't thinking like the mind of Christ, then I wonder if you believed in vain. And that's the challenge that the Lord gives us. And I love it because it's the challenge of the word. It's not just some preacher boy getting up and just, you know, it's the challenge of the word. And that's something we need to ask ourselves. And so here's a question then as you go home, as you sit down, it says, can I really tell, can I express what the gospel is, number one? And number two, Lord, has my life changed in ways that you've wanted it to change? Or am I blind to things? And if I'm blind to things, Lord, please open my eyes because I'm tired of being blind. I just want to see. I want to be able to express the love of Christ and breathe the love of Christ into my relationships. Those kind of things we should ask ourselves. And there were some Corinthian believers, remember the whole letter was in response to a church that had a lot of problems, who had intellectually acknowledged Christ but had not trusted in him or committed themselves to him. So that's why Paul begins this section on the resurrection with the gospel. Because he knew that there were some who were not saved among their midst. In Philippians 3.12, not that I've already obtained all this or I've already been made perfect, but I press on to take a hold of that for which Christ Jesus took a hold of me. And I'm glad he took a hold of me. I don't let a lot of people into my personal space. Maybe it's because I've lived alone all these years. I don't know. But somebody gets too close and I back up because I don't quite know what to do with it. It's just the way it is, right? I just back up. Personal space. But I'll tell you the one that I do leave in. It's Jesus. Please, you come close, right? See, that's the thing. You know, we can't put a wall up when it comes to our relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't put it up. You put a wall up, basically what you're doing is you're taking away the only source of light that can change you, bring you joy, change your heart, take away the hardness, take away the bitterness, take away the false thinking, take away subjective thinking that's just made up in the head and quite frankly is about as damaging as it can be. And see, this is what I take a hold of me. Man, I'm, it's, we, we have a good, good father. 
that he would individually draw us and take a hold of our hearts and then indwell us and set in process the change that is necessary so that when we are finally ushered into the kingdom, and we'll all full know, we'll know fully back when that happens, when, it, when, it, when we finally know, like he says that we will, when, it, when we are face to face with him. And so what he's doing is defining lordship, and he defines heart devotion to Christ, and he defines our daily existence in two phrases, conviction to take a stand, and embracing to hold firmly to what we've been given through Jesus Christ. And he wants us to live the gospel well in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, a work environment, a home environment, a school environment, whatever it might be. And I don't believe it's any more complicated than that. We've made it kind of complicated, but I don't believe or whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And you think of the, the power of the gospel, the Corinthian believers, and even some of us, who but the risen living Christ could have taken extortioners, thieves, adulterers, fornicators, homosexuals, liars, idolaters, and such worldly pagans and transformed them, transformed them into the community, community of the redeemed. Who but the power of the Lord Jesus Christ could have taken each and every one of us and whatever we did and what were we, the things that we're ashamed of and formed us into a community of the redeemed. All because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. And these believers, I mean, Paul was, was maybe some of, ashamed of some of their actions, but he was not ashamed to call them brethren because he knew that he himself was no better that's why he says, you know, uh, for, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Calls himself abnormally born, one who persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. And God came and he touched him and he changed him. And maybe you're tired of where you are. Maybe you're tired of not changing enough. Maybe you're sick and tired of the way you think and how you respond to people. Maybe you're sick and tired of being angry and bitter. Maybe you're sick and tired of not liking yourself. I don't know. But what you can do is you can get on your knees before the Lord and cry out to him to change you. I just want more and more and more of you, Lord. And less and less and less of me because I'm tired of myself. And oh, he loves prayers like that. But then it's willing to change the way he wants you to change too, isn't it? It's willing to accept what he wants to change in your life. Well, you, you mean I give this up? Yes. You mean no longer? Yes. You mean? Yes. And we go along and we allow this process of sanctification to take a deeper and deeper root. And that's really what it's all about. And this is what Paul was going, what he's trying to get them to understand. But let's look at the gospel, verses 3 through 11. And, and I'll just, I, I, I'm going to read the top of the outline and then we'll get into this from Red Path because I think it's really good.
has a gospel got a hold of you, or is it this thing just a theory to you? I tell you, unless in our life there has been a recognition of sin, which has brought you on your face before Jesus Christ, you're not saved. Until there has come a moment in your experience when God has shown you that sin is not only being immoral or impure, but basically it is self and all its ugliness. You know nothing of salvation. If you can say, yes, I've come to recognize sin, to be what God says it is, then there has, has there been a revolution of character? Has Jesus Christ, your indwelling Lord, begun to form himself in you? If there has been a revolution of character and manner of life, then has there been a redirection of your energy? If there have not been these three things, then you have believed in vain. And that, to me, is very profound, those two paragraphs concerning that. And so let's look at what we've put our faith in. Let's look at the gospel and what he says about the gospel. And I'll just read here in verse 3. It says, for what I received, I passed on you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. I mean, is that it? <laughs> one sentence? Oh, yes, one sentence, but oh, how powerful. How powerful. How powerful. There is so much power there. When you think about all that went on and all that transpired, when you think about a father sending his son into the world to sacrifice himself for us. And that's the power we've embraced. That's why we are what we are, children of God, sons and daughters of the living God. What a privilege, set apart from the world. I read point three here, and it's just kind of explaining this. Belief in the gospel is the only means of salvation from the wages of sin, which is death. There is no other possible way to enter into God's heaven. Belief in the gospel is believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did by sacrificing himself on the cross for our sins. It is believing on the reality of his death as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's believing that he died a physical death and was buried. And it is believing that he rose from from the dead with a glorified body victorious over sin and death. God honors true heartfelt belief by giving that person the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so once again, if somebody asks you what is the gospel, could you state it? And do you fully understand what has gone on in your life in belief in the gospel? All of us coming to the Lord at different stages in our lives or different ages in our life. And so first three, it's something he says that he passed on, or that is to be passed on. He said, I pass it on to you. So we understand when Paul was there, many came to know Christ in his visit in planting that church because he passed the gospel on to them. And it'd be interesting to know exactly what he said. But you know, this is what he said. He just stated it simply. And so once again, if someone were to ask you what the gospel is, you start with what you know. That's what you start with. 
you know, this is the thing. We all get kind of, oh, I don't know what to say to an individual. What's wrong with just stating the gospel and the Holy Spirit do his work? Really, it's, he's the one that moves us, right? I mean, when the gospel was stated to me, the Holy Spirit did his work. Granted, he, I, it had to be stated to me probably two dozen times. <laughs> but then the Holy Spirit did his work because <laughs> one planted many times. Oh, no, they were watering. That's right. And they watered many times. And then unbeknownst to me, that seed sprouted. And I understood. How precious is your faith to you? How precious is it? See, if it's precious, then you don't want anything to do with the world. If it's precious, then you don't want to do with any, anything to do with what's been convicting you, what you've allowed into your eye gate or your heart gate. If it's precious, you'll just find yourself in love with Jesus. Yeah, I just love to watch kids. Um, come on, bring some more on here, you know. But we need girls, right? <laughs> and how they go up to it, like, just go up, how precious they are, innocent, um, eager to learn, full of life. And the Lord looks at us, his children, and he wants innocence. He wants us to shun evil. He wants us to be full of life, the spirit. He wants us to express the goodness that he's given us. That's what he wants from us. And I can't think of a better thing for us to have and so what Paul was saying here is known as a creed or a statement of belief, this gospel statement didn't really originate with Paul. Actually, it was given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ, and we merely pass on what we receive. If you're not excited about your faith, you're not going to pass it on. Something you're going to keep private. Something you're going to keep to yourself. If it's something you're ashamed of, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for there's the power of God unto salvation, for all who believe. Why are you ashamed of it? What are you hiding from? Are you embarrassed? Well, these are questions we need to ask. But why? I mean, listen, I, I did the same thing. I, get, I, I leave sometimes with her. Why didn't I open my mouth? Was I ashamed to open my mouth? These things are all legitimate questions. Romans 10, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now then, can they believe in one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent as, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And so the Lord challenges us once again concerning those things. And so let's break it down a little more. You know, its main emphasis, this gospel, is that Christ died for our sins. Think about that. 
as with any conviction, it's important to understand what that conviction is in spreading the gospel and talking about, well, you know, Jesus Christ died for my sins. Well, what does that mean? As you talk to somebody that's totally unchurched and has no understanding of the gospel whatsoever, it's different today. There used to be somewhat of a, of a, a religious foundation or a Christian foundation in the churches. It's different today. People don't know anything about this. And so here you have a conviction. In other words, know what you believe. And the key concept of this one phrase is that Christ did not die for his sins. He died for our sins. He died for my sin. He died for your sin. And if somebody asked you why, could you answer him or her? Could you? If you struggle with it, that's okay because... Sometimes it takes a while to really fully understand these things, that it's something that's important to know and express. And the, the fact that he died for our sins is the language of atonement. And if you use the word atonement, they're just going to look at you as their eyes roll back in their heads, right? <laughs> I used the word, I was teaching a group of guys a couple of months ago, I used the word sanctification, and the guy who was a leader says, well, that's an, that's an old-fashioned word. I says, well, you mean it's old-fashioned, it's in the Bible. You know? Really? Well, the atonement, word atonement's in the Bible. It doesn't mean we can't explain it, you know? To, to atone means that you pay a penalty for something to make compensation or amends. It means to pay a price, a penalty. Jesus paid the penalty for my sin on the cross. That's what he did. Simple as that. Penalty? What do you mean, penalty? Well, because my sin has alienated me from God. Have you ever felt alienated? It's not a good feeling to feel alienated. Isn't it wonderful that the Lord drew us near? That we are no longer alienated from him? In other words, we're no longer alone. That we have him. So to atone means to pay a penalty for something. So when he sacrificed himself for man, he chose to pay the penalty for our sin. And so if somebody were to ask you, why could you explain? That's the question. And it simply means that our sin and rebellion has alienated us from God. And the only way that that can be corrected is through someone paying the price for that sin. It's the only way it could be corrected. And that someone was Jesus Christ. Praise God. I mean, I've always been a guy that thinks he can fix anything, fly by the seat of his pants. <laughs> it always comes out somewhat okay. I couldn't fix this, and I knew it. Hebrews 7.27, unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Do you know the gospel? How precious is it to you? 
Is your life changed? Are there things in your life that Christ does not want there anymore? Are you willing to take a stand? Have you taken a stand? Is it something you've grabbed a hold of? Does the gospel define who you are? You see how different it is than the thinking of the world. The world wants to define you in ways that quite frankly, that quite frankly destroy and alienate. And Jesus wants to define you in ways that brings you life and health. And so that's the first part of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. And notice what he says according to the scriptures. You know, what writings did they have back then? It's one of the first letters wrote in the writings they had were the Old Testament was the Old Testament scriptures. So he would take them to the Old Testament, like Isaiah 53 and other scriptures, some of the Messianic Psalms. And they were coming to know Christ through all that. And look at us today. We have all the New Testament, this wonderful book that's been written for us. And it explains so much to us. Oh, how much more we have. And the second part is that Christ's burial ver verifies the reality of his death. And he just reads, so he said, I passed that first Christ died for his sins according to scriptures, that he was buried, that he was buried. And so some might ask, why emphasize his death? And really what it means is that his dead corpse was laid in a grave so that the resurrection that follows will be recognized as an objective reality. There were those who saw that, right? They saw his dead body being put. They, you know, the women wrapped his body in, you know, in, in the funeral wrappings. They wanted to put spices around. And eyewitness accounts verify that Christ's death and his burial was an objective truth. And whether or not somebody chooses to believe that does not nullify the fact that it's an historical fact. Someone's disbelief does not nullify the belief of the gospel. You know, it's interesting in doing funerals and our hearts tug. That it's interesting every time I do a funeral, and I've done, I don't know, several dozen, I guess. And you, and you, you look at the, the person and you realize from God's perspective, that there's no life in the corpse. And you look at that, and if they're a believer, I always smile, even though my heart tugs for those who are grieving. And especially when we do the committal, and you're standing there, and you watch the casket, we've all seen it go down into the ground, into the crypt, or what do they call that thing, and put the, and you know, I often think of this, I said, there's no concrete there is no casket or concrete going to keep that individual from being resurrected up through all that to be with the Lord. Such a temporary existence. And that's why I believe that we are told with great emphasis that he was buried. And then the third part of the gospel emphasizes Christ's resurrection. And it says here that Christ died according to sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, that he was raised. And once again, Paul emphasizes uh, with the authority of the scriptures 
And the word raised means he had been raised or has been raised. And this was done on the third day. And so now we understand. So once again, could you state what the gospel is? That he died for our sins, that he was buried, and he was raised for the third day. What do you mean he died for our sins? Well, he died as an atonement for our sins. In other words, he died to pay the price for your sin. He sacrificed himself once and all for your sin. And as a result of that, that when you believe in him, when you believe that he was buried, when you believe that he was physically buried, when you believe that he was resurrected, when you put your faith in the gospel, the finished work of Christ on the cross grants you eternal life to spend with him for eternity. And the question is, how precious is that to you? How precious is it to me? Is it precious enough that your life has changed? Or are you holding on to things that don't in any way reflect the grace and the holiness of Christ in you? That's the question. Are you still angry? Are you still bitter? Are you still fighting battles? Are you still treating people like garbage? Are you still involved with things because of the pleasure of the flesh? Are you indulging in things that you shouldn't be indulging in? You see, this, is, this all falls under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and this is what Paul is doing here because of what the Corinthian believers were living like. And the question comes right down to it is, how precious is the gospel? In Luke 24, he says, and he told them, this is what is written, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third, third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be, will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. And that's the gospel, and this is what Paul talks about. We're just going to finish here, and I'll just finish reading out, just commenting a little bit, because I just love it. So here he rises from the dead, obviously. And the first person he appears to is Peter, the one who denied him three times. And he appears to Peter, because Peter needed encouraged. And then to the twelve. And then after that, he appeared to 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James. He appeared to his brother. Maybe he appeared to him because of the way his brother had treated him when he was a kid. I don't know. But can you imagine being his brother, and you're standing there, and you see Jesus Christ, and you see him resurrected, and you're thinking as your mind swims out of control. Do you mean that I was raised with Jesus, the Son of God, God himself? And he appears to James. I love it. Treat your siblings well. And then to the other apostles, and the last of all, he appeared to me also. And this is the thing with us, and I love that Paul put this here. Listen. Paul did not deserve salvation. He didn't deserve it. None of us do. And he says, one abnormally born. Don't you think we're all abnormally born? I do. Yeah. For I'm the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. I hated the church. I blasphemed the church. I even put those in the church to death. I was doing everything I could to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And to think 
that he reached down and touched my heart and drew me into a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, I do not deserve it. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. By the grace of God, you are what you are. Please do not let the grace of God be without effect. This world is in desperate need of believers who are willing to take a stand on the gospel and to live well for the Lord. And let him bear the fruit. And he'll give us the strength to do what we need to do to stand on the gospel and to grab a hold of it. Now I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. And so we understand this grace of God being with us. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you have believed. And that's what defines us. We are a peculiar people. I love peculiar. And we are a saved people, and we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And the grace of God rests upon us, and we're privileged to know him. And so his appearing purposed several things. It gave solid and irrefutable evidence of his deity. It solidly put in place an historical record of his deity. It reinforced, encouraged, and solidified the faith of his followers. And it put in motion the powerful and ongoing existence of the church of Christ. That's what his resurrection did. And so here we are, saved people. And God ha has a work to do, and he desires to do it in each and every one of us before he returns. So let's live well for him. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how powerful it is, Lord. We thank you that you've changed us. So this I ask, Father, as we live this life and as we struggle in its midst, I pray, Father, that you would empower us in ways that we've never experienced, Lord. I pray that you would empower us in ways to be able to live a life, Father, that just is a light and salt, Lord, to those in desperate need to see goodness in the world, to see integrity, Father, to see your spirit to see that what we've embraced, Lord, is truly something that puts in their heart the desire to embrace. So thank you, Father, for being present, and thank you for being our good Father, Lord. And this we say, we love you very much, and we thank you that you love us. And so, Father, what we desire to do is embrace you as you hold us by the hand, and walk us, Lord, through this life until you take us home. So, Father, we love you and we thank you for taking good care of us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.